Hey, it's Karen. Welcome to Rational in Portland, where we say everything that you can't say in Portland. Today, I have a really special guest. She's under contract with a major publishing house, but she's self-published a new book under a pseudonym. It's called Frogs Don't Need Floaties by Allie Crenshaw. Why was it published under a pseudonym? Well, because this new book is about risk-reward balance. And my guest, pen name, Allie Crenshaw, says she knows this book would never be considered by her publishing house. She is concerned that based on the morality clause she has with the publishing house, that the phrase morality would be interpreted to mean any kind of information that does not fit with the far left-wing narrative regarding COVID. What is this book about? Is it spreading misinformation about vaccines? No, this is a children's book about the subtle nature of risk-reward balance. It's called Frogs Don't Need Floaties. It's a very cute book by Ellie Crenshaw, and it's about the nuanced nature of risk-reward balance that all of us engage in in everyday life. It teaches kids about how to weigh risks versus rewards when they are making decisions. Allie's concerned that the book would be seen as an anti-masking book. She's going to explain all this to you in this episode. She's concerned that her publishing house would drop her based on its morality clause if they knew about this book. She's concerned that her agent would drop her. Although Allie, again, this is the pseudonym she's using to self-publish this children's book, Frogs Don't Need Floaties. Although Allie is with a major publishing house, she doesn't feel that she could ever even talk to her agent or her publisher about this book or let them know that she's the one who wrote it. She depends on that contract for her livelihood, and she doesn't have J.K. Rowling-style money to be canceled. This is not a book about COVID. It's a book about the nuances of decision-making, but let's get real about the data here because there seems to be a fair amount of confusion, particularly in Portland, Oregon, about what's really going on with COVID and how big of a threat it actually poses to all of us, including kids, and whether masks are effective at stopping COVID, particularly COVID as we sit here today in February 2022. But based on the data, and I'll link all this in the show notes, you know, Dr. Michael Osterholm was ringing the alarm bell on this back in the summer of 2020-21. We did a fair amount of episodes on that. Lena Wen, Dr. Lena Wen, who's the science analyst at CNN, a great big masker, has actually come out publicly and said cloth masks don't work. They didn't work against alpha. They didn't work against delta. They've never been appropriate for COVID. She said it. Never been appropriate for COVID. And yet we still have a mask mandate in Oregon. In fact, our mask mandate is now pretty close to being permanent. My understanding is it likely will end up being made permanent. Does that make sense based on the data? In fact, there's a permanent school mask mandate for kids. Does that make sense? Let's get real about that data, all of which we'll link in the show notes. A Brown University study on masks showed that kids have significant cognitive and motor delays they can only be described to the loss of human connection due to mask mandates. We know cloth masks don't work. We've known that for a really, really long time. Dr. Osterholm from the University of Minnesota, who was on Biden's COVID transition team, was sounding the alarm on that back in August of 2021. We've covered all that in this podcast extensively, including during summer of 2021. Even Lena Wen 
CNN's COVID science analyst is now admitting cloth masks don't work on Alpha, Delta, certainly, certainly not Omicron. They were never appropriate. We've now got Monica Gandhi, a huge mass proponent and a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. She went to Harvard Medical School. She's an infectious disease doc, worked on the AIDS pandemic. We've got her now saying that transmission is not reduced by cloth or surgical masks. And in fact, she supports one-way masking only when concerned parents or concerned adults want to put masks on or want to put masks on their children. But she says mask mandates are unnecessary. We have got kids in these cloth masks all day long at school. They're getting all these proven downsides, such as those documented in the Brown University study for masks, like hiding their faces, not learning how to read facial expressions, et cetera, and none of the supposed upsides. So let's dive further into the data and let's actually talk about the real risk to kids from COVID. The risk of death under age five from a motor vehicle accident, according to Dr. Peter Atia, who went to Stanford Medical School. He trained in surgery at Johns Hopkins. He was a surgeon for a long time. He is now a longevity doctor. He's got a podcast called The Drive. According to Dr. Atia, he's analyzed this data and the risk of death under age five from a motor vehicle accident is 11 times that from COVID. 11 times greater of a child under the age of five dying in a motor vehicle accident than from COVID. And yet we're masking these kids up all day long in preschool. Every single sign in Portland, Oregon says if you're two or over, you'd better put a mask on. Two years old. Homicide. Risk of death under the age of five. Ten times greater than that from COVID. Drug overdose. Two times greater than that from COVID. That blew my mind. And according to Dr. Atia, he's assuming that that data is based on picking up a parent's drugs or medication, given that their kid's under the age of five. Let's talk about the five to 14-year-old range. Risk of death from suicide, 6.5 times greater than from COVID. Risk of death from homicide, five times greater than death from COVID. We need to get upset about a lot of other things in this country. For a healthy child, the fact is the risk stratification is different. The risk of complications and death to a middle-aged man who is vaccinated is higher than an unvaccinated healthy kid. Joe Rogan was right about that when he said that to Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And Dr. Gupta didn't dispute it because it's a fact. So Ali's book is very subtle. Frogs don't need floaties. It's not in your face. It's a kid's book that breaks down the risk versus reward balancing that we all should be engaging in, which is apparently so hard for adults in this country, particularly the Oregon Health Authority. Frankly, adults need to read this Frogs Don't Need Floaties book because the idea is kids need masks like frogs need floaties. Allie is a conservative now. She wasn't always. She's going to discuss her political journey on this show. She also discusses why she self-published the book cancel culture in the literary world, why she didn't feel comfortable publishing this book under her true name, and a lot more. So stay tuned. And hey, if you like this podcast, please tell a friend. That is how you can support us. We do not make any money at all from this podcast, but it is very difficult. It's a lot of work to produce. So if you want to help support us, please, please, please tell a friend. And it really helps if you give us a five-star rating on iTunes. We have a lot of far-left fringe people 
who have given us a one-star review. And if you want to advocate for us and help us out, we're not requesting money. We're just requesting that you go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating because that will help other people find the podcast. Please fight for us if you like what you hear. Thank you so much. Stay tuned for Allie Crenshaw, Frogs Don't Need Floaties. Hi, it's Karen, and welcome to the Rational in Portland podcast, where we say everything you can't say in Portland. Today, I'm really excited because I am joined by a very well-known children's author, although you won't have heard her by this name because of the cancel culture that is present within the literary arts community. So this is an author who has a publishing contract with a major publishing house and has written a book that she feels could get her canceled. And she's done it under the name Allie Crenshaw. So Allie is joining us today. And Allie, your new book, Frogs Don't Need Floaties, is out now, right? Where can we buy it? Yes, it is out in the world. It's been a lot of fun. Um, you have to go to Amazon and type in Frogs Don't Need Floaties book. For some reason, you need to write a book. And you'll see it. Okay, so we need to type in Frogs Don't Need Floaties book. And it's a children's book, right? This Is this your first children's book? It's not my first children's book. I really love writing picture books. Um, but it is my first picture book under the name Ollie Crenshaw. And it was a ton of fun to write. Um, do you want me to yeah, kind tell, of give tell a us about summary? it. I can't wait to hear about the etymology of the book? Sure. So, Proxmoney Floaties is a story for mask mandates, but it's never explicitly mentioned in the book. Of course, it's for children. You cut out really so, quick. It's, a, it's about mask mandates, but it's not explicitly mentioned in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what happens is there is a class of frogs, and they get a new paranoid school nurse who wants to make them all wear floaties, so that they don't fall into the puddles around the campus. And, you know, the frogs, most of them are like, okay, if you say so. And uh, there's one frog named Frankie who doesn't think this makes sense. He says, I, you know, I know how to swim. The puddles aren't deep. It doesn't seem like this would ever be a problem. And he's the only one that questions this. So as the book goes on, it escalates. They end up having to wear scuba masks. Um, at the end he kind of confronts the nurse and it has a twist ending ends up being a happy ending he's able to help her understand risk benefit analysis a little better so I've read um, portions of it I've read the portions that you've released on Twitter can you give us your Twitter handle so that we can direct people to you if they want to connect with you sure it's Ali Crenshaw 12 so that's A-L-L-I-E, Crenshaw, 12. And if you want to preview a little bit of the book, she's got, Allie's got some really cute photos. You were able to find a great illustrator, it looks like. Yeah, that was my favorite part, I think. I just went to Fiverr, actually, and I got about four to five samples of different illustrators. Um, just paid them all to give me, you know, a sketch. And I found this one girl who was so talented. 
Um, and I let her know, I was like, you know, this is about mask mandates. Is that going to be a problem? And she was totally fine with it and did a really good job. She did a great job. It's a really cute book. And the portions that I read that you had released on Twitter seemed very, just like you said, very subtle to me. They didn't seem it. I mean, they certainly don't talk about masks. It's about a frog who's forced to wear floaties and the floaties get in the way of the frog's ability to thrive and do everything that a frog would normally do or a kid. Like the, the, the frog character is like a child who can't play at recess, right? I mean, there's a section like that. Right. Like the frog notices, oh, these floaties are actually making it hard to color and do the things I like to do. Um, because yeah, I didn't want kids to necessarily read this book and think, oh, this is about masks. That wasn't the intention. The intention was for them to kind of learn how to think about rules and why they exist and whether this rule is worth the you know cost that it comes with um, to question authority, not in a disrespectful way, but um, understanding that sometimes people in authority can be wrong. It's possible. And that just because everyone is doing the same thing doesn't make that right automatically. Well, and I think it's great that it's not literal. It wouldn't be fun right? if it were mm-hmm. completely literal. And it's, it's really, it struck me more about the kinds of tools that you need in life to make decisions about risk reward balancing. Is that kind of what you were getting at? Yeah, totally. In the end, I mean, I'll give away the enemy because it's just a picture book, I guess. He kind of shows his Don't teacher. Don't sell yourself short. It's a great, everybody go out and read it. It's well, a great book. That's true. I don't want to give away the ending too much, but um, he, you know, he helps his teacher realize this by replacing some of her things to keep her safe. He's like, oh, well, I want to keep you safe from poking yourself with the pencil. So you can only use crayons now. <laughs> and it, you know, a few things like that. Um, it's a good starting point for kids to talk with their kids. Like uh, there's a line that says we can be smart without being scared. So what are some common sense things that we do to keep ourselves safe? And what are some things that would be silly? What are some things that wouldn't really be worth, um, you know, the, the protective measures? Like we don't wear helmets around all day because we might fall and trip. And it's just kind of a nuanced discussion, I guess you can have about, how we can be smart without just living in fear and being hypochondriac. I think it's totally nuanced. It completely resonated with me. And um, the pictures were adorable to me. I know they're adorable to kids. But also, it's just a great, it's a great book for adults, too, to sort of think about all the risks that we take in our lives, particularly um, I'm really into this longevity doctor, Peter Atia. He has a podcast called The Drive and he's on Twitter and he just released some statistics about why COVID isn't really a threat to kids when you compare it to activities that they engage in every day, like the number one threat to kid, kids, which is automobile accidents. Um, right. I mean, one of the bigger threats to kids than COVID for kids five and under he said, was Mm -hmm. drug overdose. And I'm assuming that that just means, you know, 
mom and dad left their pain pills out or, or, or he said it could even be, you know, a, kid, a baby grabbing a way too much Tylenol or whatever. But, you know, those mm-hmm. are the kinds, especially I live in Oregon. It's a marijuana friendly state. And in fact, all drugs here are decriminalized. The, these are the kinds of things. Uh, it's, it's not uncommon to find marijuana in people's homes and I don't think it would that would kill a kid, but I don't. I also don't think it's uncommon to find opiates in people's homes. It's certainly not uncommon to find Tylenol in people's homes. We get in the car. I, you know, Portland is as much as it likes to think it's a transit fam friendly city. It it is nothing like New York or D.C. Their transit is frankly terrible. It doesn't go to all the quadrants of the city, and we rely really heavily on cars. It's a lot like. Los Angeles. Um, it's a lot like the, it's worse than the Bay area in regard to transit, but you know, the Bay area, they love their cars and we're really just, unless you live in one of those like New York or DC type cities, we're driving our kids around all day long. We're clearly taking a calculated risk every time we do that, that is far, far more dangerous to them than COVID. Right. Yeah. This stuck out to me really early on in the pandemic, just looking at the statistics and how, you know, the government the campaigns really work to elevate one risk so much in the forefront of any other risk. Um, and it's not healthy. It's not healthy to walk around, you know, in anxiety that your kid is going to get this disease um, when by all available statistics, if they're healthy, they'll be totally fine. What was your tipping point that clued you into this risk benefit type analysis. I know or relatively early on, we knew it wasn't a threat to kids, but what was it like an article you read or a podcast or what? I, and maybe it wasn't one moment. Um, but I, I, if it was, I'm interested in hearing about it. Yeah, it was just not one moment specifically that I can point to, but it was just as I listened to different voices, um, like, well, Ben Shapiro was one, which I know he's kind of, uh, some people love him, some people hate him. But I think he, you know, does a good job kind of laying out what the statistics are. And early on in the pandemic, that's what I would listen to because it kept me sane to feel like I understood what was happening. Um, not just, and, you know, the age stratification. A lot of the mainstream media was not covering the age stratification. So it was comforting to hear that and to understand the, you know, context of the statistics a little deeper. So you could have ensconced yourself like most of the rest of us did in, you know, whatever was coming across our newsfeed fear porn and just been terrified and hold yourself up and your kids up in your house. And you were kind of curious and seeking out actual data points, it sounds like. Right, exactly. And it sounds like there was a big group on Twitter that, like, the team reality kind of started early on. I'm, I'm late to the game in Twitter. I only started my account a few months ago. Um, yeah, but I have friends on there who, yeah, team reality. And they've been sharing just the straight statistics since the beginning, which is really cool. So I know I'm Alex Harrington did a lot. Too. I, when, did that, mm-hmm. when did that start? Did that start soon after March 2020 or even in, do you, do you know when that started or did you just, when you arrived on Twitter, it was already there? I'm not sure when it um, started. I know Alex Berenson was one of the very early ones who was actually analyzing the statistics. Um, so 
but I didn't have it, my account back then, so I wasn't following it closely. Berenson's the one who was banned on YouTube and getting podcasters banned on YouTube, and he he wrote a book called Tell Your Children About Marijuana. He was a New York Times writer. I mean, he's an Ivy League education. He's not a dummy. He's not um, some kind of Alex Jones wackadoo type. He's He's not a... From what I can tell, he's not solely invested in um, riling people up. He's not. He's not like a um, an entertainment figure. I mean, he's he really is actually interested in studying the numbers and putting that out. And my understanding is he now has a Substack, and I know he has a. Is he on? Did he get banned from Twitter? He did, yes. I have the tweet right here. I just pulled it up. This is the tweet that banned him forever from Twitter. He wrote, it doesn't stop infection or transmission. True, that proved to be true. Uh, It doesn't stop infection, right, or transmission. Don't think of it as a vaccine. Think of it at best as a therapeutic with a limited window of efficacy and terrible side effect profile that must be dosed in advance of an illness. And we want to mandate it in sanity. And so it's funny because that whole thing, you know, that's what got him banned from Twitter forever. Looking at it in hindsight, hindsight is twenty twenty. Everything he said was completely accurate. Didn't stop infection. Didn't stop transmission. It's kind of more like a therapeutic because it does, you know, uh, help with the, you know, why can't I think of words right now? Well, that lim- limited window of efficacy. Yeah. Right. The symptoms. Thank you. Um, sorry, I have a child that is totally staring at hands from in the background. Oh, okay. My husband it's is safe. My husband's watching them. <laughs> um, yeah. So you know, you look at that tweet now, and it seems totally ridiculous that that's what got him banned. And he's been wrong on some things, and he's been right on a lot of things. But so has everybody. I don't follow um, him super closely. Does he acknowledge when? I mean, I love it when. I think it's great when people are wrong, particularly. Mm-hmm. The people who acknowledge it, um, does, does he right. acknowledge that? Yeah, he does. He says, I've, I've gotten some things wrong, but a lot of the things have been correct and are, it's, you know, showing to be more and more correct every day. When, what was the date of that tweet you just read? The tweet that got him banned? Do you know? Ooh, yeah, let me see. That was August 29th. 2021. Wow. Okay. So just this last summer. So he lasted a while. Yeah. Yeah. And and what's so amazing now he's not back on, right? They haven't let him back on. He's, he's. No. Yeah. I haven't really heard many times of people being banned and then being able to come back even under different names because they have your, um, they still can tell that it's you. Yeah, and that's a, that's a big um, part of somebody's career. They're following their platform on Twitter. So I think he's pursuing some sort of legal action against Twitter. So are a lot of different people. Well, it's just crazy to me because it turned out to be right. And if... if right. If I know Jack's stepping down, but if, if any of those staffers were actually cool, they would acknowledge that it turned out to be right and reactivate it. 
Right. Yeah, it's true. But I think at this point, there's a personal vendetta and, you know, both ways, they, he and Twitter just hate each other. They've got legal action. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that that's right. You know, did you, because your message is so complex and interesting and not explicitly about masks, did you ever try to see if a mainstream publisher such as the publishing house that you're under contract with would pick it up or was that just too scary of a proposition? It would be too scary of a proposition. Also, as an adult, the parallels are pretty clear. As a child, they might not be so clear. But as an adult, I think it would definitely get a lot of angry, angry um, feedback. (laughs) So I didn't bother trying... um, I knew what that would probably lead to. And I'm happy to self-publishing. What? Oh, um, well, yeah, the, you know, the, all the writers in the writing industry, they are so incredibly COVID obsessed. It's like you think of the bluest of blue cities and how crazy the people are about COVID there. The writing community is like double the craziness of that. You see people in literal, like, this one lady, I remember she like dressed herself up in this incredible get up gear to go give her mom a hug. Um, it seems like there's a lot of virtual sig- virtue signaling going on in the writing community of how, you know, how serious they're taking this pandemic, which I don't know. That's just their thing. They've really latched onto it. And it's all groupthink in the writing community. Nobody steps out of lockstep without getting completely piled on. Really? So, and by the writing community, you mean it's everybody. It's the authors. It's the publishing houses. It's the editors. The agents. The agents. The agents. The librarians. The booksellers. Yeah, it is not a friendly community to anyone against the mainstream narrative. So would it have been a possibility that your publisher would drop you? Would that, would that have been a possibility? I think so. So I, I don't remember. Um, I told you about this, but when you sign a contract with a mainstream publisher, and I, I did sign one of these, I did it before I even really thought much about what I was signing. They have something called a morality clause. And the morality clause uses very vague language. And it basically says if your reputation is different or becomes different than the reputation you had when we signed you, then we have the right to take away your advance and they can even sue you for your advance money. Um, I guess the idea is that, you know, if you become a persona non grata, they can't sell any of your books. They lose out on money. They can sue you for your advance money. But they leave it so vague that it almost terrifies writers into thinking that they can't say anything because, you know, if I advocated against mask mandates, does that count as my reputation being ruined? Does that count as me being able to not receive my advance from you? Um, and it could. I mean, it's not likely, but it's possible. And I think that's the way that they really try to stifle dissent. Were you concerned about the potential risk that your agent would drop you by even suggesting the book? I never suggested this book to her. <laughs> but is that why? I just, yeah, yeah, for sure. 
Um, I don't really know what her opinions are. I'm lucky to um, have an agent that isn't completely in, into the Twitter world. She's not one of those that's constantly posting on Twitter. So I haven't asked her about her opinion, but you know, this was just something that I wanted to do on my own. I wanted to be able to market it, um, you know, in a way that felt authentic and have control over the illustrations and the messaging. And it's been a lot of fun. Of course, you don't make nearly as much money self-publishing like at all, but that's fine. This wasn't for the money. This was to get a good message out to lots of kids, have some fun. I've connected with some amazing people on Twitter. Um, and I have reviews rolling in, people sending me videos of their kids talking about the book. And it's all been worth it. It's been great. Yeah, you self-published it. And mm-hmm. you're, it is a real risk because you're not... It, it, writing is your livelihood, is it not? I mean, you're not J.K. Rowling. You can't afford to just have your livelihood be canceled. Right. Yeah. And I mean, as writers, we have big dreams. We want to write several books, many books for the rest of our lives. And we want to, you have to be with the big publishers if you want to be in all the Barnes and Nobles and the school libraries and and things like that. So um, there's a real risk with speaking out and going against the grain. Um, We'd all love to have Effie money like Jackie Rowling and maybe someday, (laughs) maybe someday. Well, it's really well-reviewed. I looked at it on Amazon. It's incredibly well-reviewed. And, um, you know, if you want to jump on there and get this, guys, it's only $4 for the Kindle. If your kid is into iPads or their iPod or whatever, and it's only $9 for the the paperback. Now, tell me about Brightside Book Reviews, because it it looks like you've got um, Brightside Book Reviews did a blurb saying a much needed Mm -hmm. tale for the current era. Frankie inspires us all with his quick wit and willingness to stand up for what's right. What, what is bright side book reviews and how were you able to get them involved in blurbing this? I literally just reached out to tons of contacts. I messaged friends on Twitter who had big followings. I went on Instagram and I sent DMs to different um, Instagram book review pages. And I got a few blurbs and I picked the one I liked the best. I mean, it would have been cool if I could have gotten like someone famous, obviously, but as I'm, <laughs> I'm using a pseudonym, I just kind of took what I got. And um, yeah, so that's what that is, which is fun. It's fun to advocate for your own book. It's, you don't do that as a traditionally published author. You kind of just sit back and let everything happen. But it's fun to make connections and reach out and get on podcasts and, um, you know, do all this stuff. And you reached out to the Daily Wire, right? Because um, I know there aren't a lot of conservative people out there writing kids' books, but mm-hmm. it looks like Matt Walsh has a book called Johnny the Walrus. That's Right, yeah. I, I did try to reach out to them, but it didn't end up working out. I mean, it was always a super long shot, but I... Um, I was in contact with somebody who was in with them and tried to get the message across that I think it just got lost in their myriad of messages I'm sure they received. Well, I'm hoping that they pick it up when it gets more publicity because it is a very cute book. Tell us about your political evolution, if you have one. Were you always a 
I mean, I'm assuming you identify as a conservative. Were you always a conservative? Sure. So um, I would say that through college and maybe like a year after college, I identified as liberal. Um, I was an Obama supporter. Um, and then I couldn't even tell you exactly how it shifted. I It really started to shift with Trump. And I know that the people that listen to your podcast, many of them probably hate Trump. Many, some might like him, but something about Trump I did like. And it was weird because I saw everyone around me absolutely hate this man. Uh, but a lot of the messages resonated with me. Um, and even though I considered myself a liberal, I think I really did have a ton of conservative values. I just wasn't super into politics. I didn't read about these things. I didn't really think about them. I just kind of felt like liberal described anymore. Like I felt like I was educated and a free thinker. And, you know, I just felt like that was the label that fit me. And when I started actually listening to more conservative podcasts, when I started like reading more, I found that I actually identified more with a lot of conservative viewpoints. Um, And yeah, I just, I was won over. (laughs) Uh, I ended up voting for Donald Trump. What is it that uh, you listen to that, that helps shift your, your thinking? Sure. I, I like Michael Moles. Um, He's a big classical conservative. Um, and then just like reading, just actually following the news. I think I never really followed the news before. I never followed the stories. I never saw the media bias because I wasn't paying attention. And so a lot of it was just the media bias became very evident to me. Um, I would see something that Donald Trump said and I would say, oh yeah, I agree with that. And then I would see it get totally twisted and misconstrued. And my Apple phone would send me this headline and I was like, whoa, that is not what I heard. And I, you know, I saw that happen over and over and over and starting to get really disillusioned, just really losing faith in the media. And I kind of like how he went head to head with them and called them out on that. Um, I'm hoping he does not run again because I think he's too divisive. I don't think he could win. Um, but, you know, I, I guess I can always thank him for my little awakening in a sense. What, tell me about what appealed to you about him. You liked the way that he called out the media for misrepresenting things that he was saying. Can you remember an example or anything, or can you remember other things that may have resonated with you? Because although, I mean, I think I know that we have all different kind of listeners and yeah, you know, some of them are, I don't know exactly how many. But some of them are never Trumpers. Some of them are Republican never Trumpers. But they all are curious for sure, or else they wouldn't listen to me, about what people who are unlike them, how how people who are unlike them think and what Mm -hmm. the attraction of Trump was. Because if you live in, particularly in Portland, if you live in this blue bubble and you're one of the people who was like me, you know, was blown away when he was elected and just thought it was some kind of fever dream. You're, I, I, I think our listeners, and because I certainly am, and that's part of why I started the podcast, are interested in what drew you to Trump. And I think we could really benefit from learning more about constituents like you and people who 
there, there are so there had to have been right. There had to have been all these Obama voters who voted for Trump. There necessarily were. So they went from the first, there were a lot of them. Yes. So they went from the first mm-hmm. black president. I mean, the New York Times did a feature on it, and that's when I get, got really interested in it. And even the NPR, NPR started covering it. And um, there, you know, there are all these people who went from voting for the first black president to voting for this man who was deemed a white supremacist by mainstream media and, and certainly by most blue cities and states. And so I think it was confounding to people. And it's important that we understand more about where Trump's constituency is coming from. So can you tell us about what appealed to you? Sure. I think a lot of what helped was just the juxtaposition between him and Hillary. Because in the primaries, I was not a Trump supporter. I really like the more, you know, smooth, like Marco Rubio, maybe. Um, Little Marco. Right. <laughs> yeah, he just destroyed I, la- I laughed at that. I mean, I thought, <laughs> people say he's like a stand-up comedian. I a million percent agree with that. That Trump oh, is, totally. is very similar to a stand-up comedian. And I thought that that line was hope. I mean, was hilarious. And he would say things like that and everybody would look at each other like, can he do that? And then he would just keep going. And it was like, I guess so. I mean, I don't, I right. will say, I agree that he's divisive. I don't like, and now I've interrupted you, but I want to get you back on track about what appealed to you about Trump. But I, I don't, I don't like the divisiveness and I, the personal attacks and the ad hominem attacks on like Ted Cruz's wife and stuff. I mean, although it was funny. Right. Um, I don't know. I like the, I, I, I know politics is dirty. I'm not an imbecile, but I, I also like and appreciate civility and statesmanship and a John McCain style of gov- governing, a John McCain style of, of classy leadership, which I just thought was, although he was hilarious, I, I felt was mm-hmm. severely lacking and troubled me. Um, and, and, what would you say to that? I mean, as appealing as, as he was to you, you're so, now saying he's more divisive, but is that is that something that you saw as a downside at all? So basically, I think what happened is a lot of conservatives, we've had the John McCain type and we have had the Mitt Romney type and we've had the Jeb Bush type that well, are very civil one, right? and... Exactly. That's it. They're boring. They let people say crap about them and they never fight back. Mitt Romney was like milk toast and called all these horrible things. And it just didn't, we got sick of it. I think, um, they never, also, they never seemed like they had fight in them. They would never fight for the country. They would never, um, you know, it just seems like they would roll over, I guess, on policy, on, um, against the media so I think that yeah it was uncomfortable like he would say some things and it would just make you feel like oh this guy's an idiot but at the same time it was I don't know there were other things that were good that were more important yeah I want to hear about that that. what are some of the things that you can think of that really resonated with you I mean obviously he, Um, he punched back and you like that and there was a big juxtaposition between him and Hillary and you were about to tell us about that when I rudely interrupted you Right. It was the juxtaposition of the establishment been there her whole entire career, just totally focused on, um, you know, Washington. And she seemed very corrupt. And him, just a newcomer, he seemed to have some 
genuine patriotism and love of country. Some people might disagree with that, but I felt like he was authentically more patriotic and cared more about America. Um, and then, so at the beginning, it was kind of more that. And then I think after he got elected, just being the state of the country, he did have a lot of good um, results in his first four years. So I felt better the second time around than the first time around, actually, because I was feeling pretty good. I was like, well, like we were in a pretty good spot. The country seems to be doing great economically. Um, as much as people said he was racist, he did a lot for the communities that he was supposed to hate. He did a lot for the HCBUs, um, the opportunity zones in the black communities, um, was starting to gain a, a lot of black and Latino support compared to other Republicans. And I think, um, yeah, I just saw a lot of good momentum going, but the pandemic just totally crashed and burned everything right before. And we still haven't recovered from it. And it's, it's hard to say in a parallel universe, what things might be like if we would have won. It's hard to say. I, I personally think the inflation would be a lot less worse. Um, because I think a lot of Biden's policy decisions have led to this inflation, just pumping trillions of dollars into the economy, well, you know, closing Trump the different the one, gas what lines. Say, what would you say, though, Allie, to somebody who said, look, Trump was the one who started writing the checks. He made sure to sign right, all yeah. those with his name. He made a big deal about handing out money to the American people. What, right, what yeah. And that? I think that was, oh, yeah, that was a huge mistake. I think that the pandemic just, a wrench into everything and it's when things started spiraling out of control and that's another reason I wouldn't want to vote for him again was because of the pandemic response it was scary you know nobody knew in the beginning um what how serious it was and the initial checks seemed like they weren't that bad I think they had high approval um but in retrospect I think that the Great Barrington Declaration might have been a better way to go about it um We'll never know, you know, it's, it's hard to say, but I do, I do think that next time around, I'm looking for a more Ron DeSantis type. Yeah, well, I think he's pretty broadly, has, has a fair amount of bipartisan support. He's given, mm-hmm. he's promised teachers raises. He he's, seems willing and able to reach across the aisle. Although he said mm-hmm. that he's, or I've heard that he said that he's not going to run if Trump runs. So I don't know. Do you think Trump's going to run? I've looked into this. He's never actually straight out said he is not going to run. He's left it a little bit vague. He said. He loves that. Uh, he, he, he would. Right. Of course he's going to leave us hanging. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I am so nervous. It is going to be the most interesting thing because Trump is going to run again. I mean, he has high support still in the Republican party. And, you know, I I think he'll run again. Um, I don't think it will be good for the party, but I think it's going to happen. And I would hate to see him and Ron go up against each other and him just totally destroy because he just destroys everyone. I would hate to see them duke it out. Yeah. I think for a lot of disaffected Democrats, that would be, really heartbreaking because I think they're hoping and for people who've recently switched parties and for the Republican never Trumpers LinkedIn project style people I think they're I think that everybody's that that contingent is hoping that 
Trump doesn't destroy somebody like DeSantis who can grab a bunch mm-hmm. of disaffected Democrats. Although, you know, as long as Trump has his base, I don't, it's tricky. Trump still needs the disaffected Democrats. That's the problem. He still needs the former Obama voters and he's got you and I'm sure there are others like you, but he certainly needs to have enough to carry it over the finish line. Although I, if, if Biden continues the way he's going, I don't know that it'll be, it'll be that hard, but certainly although Trump started by writing the checks, I, like you said, it was scary, and I didn't think that was crazy. I mean, I remember thinking that made a lot of right. sense because he was following Fauci's advice to exactly. lock down. And and I remember saying early on, if you're going to tell people they can't work, you're going to have to give them money because everybody's going to starve. And and he started mm-hmm. the eviction moratoriums because you can't tell right. people to yeah. not work if they and and then have them be evicted from their homes. I mean, that's that doesn't work. right. And it seems to make sense at the time. It's just, it it never ended. It kept going and going, even with the new data that came. Oh, it's, it's, like it's that still thing. going in some states. It's still going here in Oregon. It's still going. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's that's crazy. It's, yeah, it's that saying that once government gets power, they're not going to give it up, even if it makes sense. Like, oh, we can actually give it up now and people will be fine. They're never going to give it up. Well, it's destroyed the rental. It's it's destroyed the rental market. Every mom and pop. Mm-hmm. The New York Times did a did a feature on people who own these mom and pop style landlords. Many of whom, particularly in in New York City, are of minority descent and have saved mm-hmm. their whole lives to buy floors of of their apartment building or other apartments in their building. And they've these these apartments have basically been taken over by squatters. Who have ruined these mm-hmm. landlords' lives uh, via, especially if they live with them via, you know, in the same building as them or on a floor of a house with them, via noise and trash and uh, drugs and criminal activity coming in and out, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. And so, yeah, totally. Yeah. I think we we brush all landlords in the same brush. Oh, they're. They're just landlords. Well, yeah, they're everybody thinks they're BlackRock or something. They're not. I mean, a lot of right. Them are not. And totally. And I'm all for restricting institutions such as BlackRock. You have 100%. a good idea about this. Tell 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 us about your idea here because I I think it's really smart. Well, it's not fleshed out, but I do think that there should be restrictions on institutional buyers that they they are limited because they're totally inflating the housing market. And taking away opportunity from home buyers. And I feel so bad for the people who are buying their first home and they have to get an average, like, little home for half a million dollars. It's just completely ridiculous. Um, so I'd love the government to step in and, you know, do something about that. But not all landlords are that way. My, um, my family, we always had a dream that we would one day own a rental property. And, you know, we would have, we don't right now because the market is insane. But when Trump was president, that was one of the things we were kind of had as a goal. We wanted to save and we wanted to put a reasonable down payment and start getting some cash flow. That's kind of the American dream right there, you know, and it would have destroyed us if we had squatters just not paying this. Well, and absolutely trashing these places. I mean, these people can't afford to mm-hmm. rebuild these structures. And so everybody that... I know, and there have been numerous articles about this in the national press, 
in these blue states and cities that are just extending these eviction moratoriums, they're the people who are not BlackRock, who are not multi multi millionaires. They're and I mean multi multi millionaires. Even the millionaires mm-hmm. are getting out of this because it is not lucrative. It, it is simply right. too risky. And if you live in a place like Portland that that already values renters and really restricts what the kinds of things that landlords can do to screen tenants and things, and you have to pay for their moving costs if you don't give them a certain kind of notice. And, you know, that was already starting to happen. And then when the eviction ban, that was pre-COVID. And then when the eviction ban started rolling in, I think everybody with a brain who could got out, you know, and the problem is a lot of people Mm -hmm. can't get out because if they're going to sell this thing, they've got these essentially squatters in it that are just extending these eviction moratoriums and refusing to leave. And and they've got all this back rent to pay, but you can't bleed a turnip. I mean, the reality is that nobody's going to get a dime out of these people. These are impecunious people who can't pay and will probably never be able to pay and will just file for bankruptcy and discharge it all. Or, or disappear off the face of the earth. You know, nobody, the, and it'll right. be too expensive to go find them and garnish all their bank accounts and hire a lawyer and whatever. And so they'll just, everybody's just going to have to pick up and move on. And I think, uh, you know, everybody who is not BlackRock, who has a brain, is the, mi- the minute these people get out and these moratoriums expire, they, they are gone. Because how do you sell a property with a tenant in it that's destroying it? I mean, I, I don't crazy. know how you off, you'd have to offload it to some company for a song because they're the only mm-hmm. ones who would be willing to take the risk. Right. Yeah. I Sometimes I think that's what should have happened. And yeah, shutting down, I, I kind of wish we never would have done it, but I understand why we did and maybe we had to. I think it just needed to have ended much, much, much sooner. So that's what I like about, you know, Florida, it, they didn't hold on to that power forever. They, once this, the data started rolling in, they started saying, okay, it might make sense now. It is still a risk, but when we get everyone out, when we get them, you know, back to work and the people there are just happier, they're less anxious and the, um, they have a much better employment rate. So I think that's the key is that, yeah, in the beginning, maybe that had to happen, but it lasted way too long. Well, that's true. I mean, there are, there are many states that have been living, like Texas, like Florida, that have been living mm-hmm. life normally for a very long time. And I will say, right. um, Dr. Atia's last podcast, The Drive, pointed out he had doctors uh, Marty Macri and uh, Monica Gandhi. He had a number of doctors on, and they were talking about different responses to the pandemic. And they pointed out that uh, Sweden has very impressive COVID data and they never shut Mm -hmm. down. You know, they have a one in 663 mortality rate versus the U.S., which is one in 387. That is radically different confirmed deaths per capita rate. And what they did, you know, they screwed up in some ways, which is they, Mm -hmm. and it was controversial. I mean, they kind of just sacrificed the elderly in the same way that Cuomo was doing, but... You know, they could, it could be yes and. You could proceed normally and they could have protected vulnerable people selectively while letting everybody else live their life. But, you know, they never focused on masks. Sweden kept younger people functioning and the economy going and they seem to be far better for it and have better, better death rates. Now, they're not fat like we are. And, you know, they, mm-hmm. they, we have a lot of comorbidities that they don't have. We've got, 
diabetes going on and heart stuff and all kinds of things that they don't have to deal with. Mm -hmm. But that said, it's certainly an interesting model. I mean, there's certainly an argument there that we never did have to shut down, that had we selectively, I mean, we identified that the elderly were at risk very early on and had we selectively protected them, fit them with a respirator if necessary, sequester them if necessary, lock lock them down if they if they want to be locked down and, and certainly get, get nursing homes under control. But otherwise, I mean, you just proceed normally. And of course they trust their government more. And so they're, a lot of them are vaccinated and they're not, they're not going to have the same deaths because they're not fat and they're not all, they, they're not all dying of COVID with all these comorbidities and things. They're, they're right. vaccinated and healthy so that, you know, of course it's going to be different, but, but the point is, I will never forget the day they announced we're proceeding business as usual. And Mm -hmm. I don't know about what it was like in your circle, but, and I know your circle is very different because you're in more, you're in a more of a red place, right? Are you in a red state? Not, not at the time. And I mean, okay. You remember the absolute screeching. Yeah. Screeching. They hated them for and I remember thinking, like, well, let them do what they want. They have their own country. Why are we, like, shrieking about this? It made a lot of sense to me. I thought that it probably would end up working out pretty well. And um, it ended up fine. Well, also you have to think, what are the excess deaths? I, I'm not sure what these statistics are, but not everything is measured by COVID deaths. That's I crazy. mean, maybe they had more COVID deaths, but maybe they had less deaths of despair or less deaths of overdose. Maybe they have better quality of life. Like there's all these oh, different I'm factors sure they, that go right, into You're it. exactly right. And I'm sure that that's yeah. true. I'm sure that that's true because no, they weren't isolated like we were. I mean, unfortunately they right. didn't isolate their elderly either, but you know, they weren't isolated like we were and they weren't filled with this kind of empty loneliness that was existing here for so long where the only people you see are other members of your immediate family and the DoorDash guy and everybody's scared to hug grandma. I mean, they were outdoors Mm -hmm. getting together and, um, you know, whereas we had an, in Oregon anyway, we had an outdoor mask mandate that lasted. I mean, it was only just lifted this last summer. And totally unscientific. There's no proof that that helped outdoors oh it's it was at least early on they were saying that outdoor transmission is outdoor transmission is like extremely minimal it's just (laughs) kind of silly but yeah I wonder if we would have focused as heavily on health as we did on virus avoidance exactly don't we probably could have saved a lot of lives don't close the playgrounds don't close the parks don't close the go to the beach get some vitamin d go out in the sun you know Um, what ali it's worse than i thought oregon did not lift its outdoor mask mandate until november 23rd of 2021 that was oh my god and that, that, that's, that's how crazy. long we've been living with that. And so to this day, you can still Bless see, you. I mean, in, par- in part, it's people wanting to give the finger to Trump because he didn't like masks. But to this day, right. you still see people out and about with a mask on, outside with a mask on, with a respirator on, with a K95 on, alone playing golf with two surgical masks on. Because they've just been living like this for so long. And a lot, yeah, I find myself, I, I'm one of the idiots that people point to. I find myself outdoors with a mask on 
just because we it, it became a habit and because we still have our indoor mandate here in Oregon and I'm always running in and out of somewhere, I can't drop the kids off at school and be on school grounds without a mask on. And so I put one on, but you know, I, and so I find myself in the car with it on outside with it on because I got to put it on to walk to idiotically walk to my dining table five feet. I got to put a mask on because COVID knows once I've sat down, right? You know, do you think that people, do you think that the literary world would be more accepting of your book uh, now or maybe even six months from now, given that the hard maskers, you know, she's nuanced, but she was always a hard masker like Monica Gandhi. I mean, even now she talks Mm -hmm. about how one-way masking works, even though she wants masks off kids in school. But, you know, she now, she wants masks off kids in school. I mean, Medium just came out with this article. Uh, More than 200 medical and health professionals co-sign open call for normalcy for U.S. children. And these are formerly Mm -hmm. really big maskers even for kids i mean and, and she was a right. real holdout even with the cloth masks going as far as arguing like cloth masks create a uh, they may not slow transmission certainly not of omicron or or certainly not stop it but they create like humidity that kind of lessens the symptoms of the virus and and she monica gandhi has signed this dr lucy mcbride who's an internist and mental health advocate is really pushing this. And there are just all these people now who, although were pro-mask, are now coming out and saying, look, finally, after two years, I don't know why it took so long, but the evidence is in and this masking of kids has to stop. I mean, do you, do you think that the tide is turning? It's definitely turning for sure. Although there is a very um, large segment, uh, I mean, not not a majority, but there is like maybe I would say 33% of people who I don't think are going to let this go for years, honestly. Um, but yeah, I think that there would be a lot of people maybe secretly messaging me like, I agree with you, but as of now, I don't think there would be any public um, support at all. That's interesting so about uh, about Gandhi. I, did you know she just said that she's not giving her children booster? Yeah, well, you know, she was on this. I I encourage anybody who is interested in nuanced thinking about COVID to listen to this. It's called part two of this COVID analysis on Peter Atiyah's Drive podcast. He's a Stanford MD who was Hopkins trained as a surgeon who decided to do longevity work. And Mm -hmm. he had her on and a a bunch of other great people on like Marty Macri and Um, he, you know, he, she said, Monica Gandhi, who was just, I, I thought was super interesting. And I was kind of following on Twitter just because she was a little more nuanced, but she was just mask, 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 even with the kids. And she said some things that on this podcast that absolutely blew me away. Not only that, that kids don't need boosters. She's, she went into natural immunity. She said, if you've had COVID, you've got the best booster of all. That's a quote. From this podcast, I mean, I, I almost yeah, felt and over. you would have gotten you would have gotten banned on Twitter if you said that six months ago. Well, and her saying that, right? And yeah, the tide is turning. I way, have a theory, though. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I want to hear. I, I think that there 
they realize that they have a losing message. Biden's approval is in like the high 30s, low 40s in a lot of schools. Oh, it's been terrible. And I think, right, I think that they want to move on. I think that in a way this is, a, you know, because of the data, but in a way it's also calculated. They want a new message. They want people to be less divided and angry over this. So I think that's why part of why they're changing the messaging and letting it go, which, you know, is a good thing because it needs to be let go. Um, but yeah, I... Maybe I'm just a cynic. I don't think everything is because people are on <laughs> it. It's just, it's, it's, it's amazing to me. I, I, th- I do think part of it is the data, what the data was obscured. Why, why are we learning mm-hmm. that cloth and surgical masks are useless two years into the pandemic? You know, there, right, it, exactly. there has been an absolute absence of fulfilling the NIH and CDC's obligation to give data to us. They, they had the, they've got mm-hmm. these astronomical budgets and they can't do a basic study on mass. And we had all these states and cities with kids, kids and people who are going about their lives, not masking. I mean, we, we didn't have to subject right. anybody to quote unquote ethical health risks. We could just compare a not unmasked population to a masked population. It's almost like we've got a bunch of little countries around here that we could have done that with. Exactly. Yeah. They, they, messaging is still mixed because they are still saying, oh, any mask that you're comfortable in is better than no mask. It's like, well, that's not really true. Well, I think some of them, Um, I think some of them are. I I think Monica, I think Monica would say that, but only to the extent that it, not because of transmission. So she was really clear on Atiyah's Mm -hmm. podcast that she would only say that, um, say, for example, a cloth mask is only going to be helpful to you because it creates this humidified environment around your face and it could lessen mm-hmm. symptoms of COVID. And she didn't go into what what we're talking about here, whether that would even move the needle. But she was pretty unequivoc- unequivocal. January 27th, she, she tweeted, um, respirators, other high-quality masks are highly effective at protecting their wearers, regardless of what people around them are doing. My mm-hmm. mask protects you and your mask protects me is obsolete. Allow for masks optional for students and staff. I mean, I, I almost fell over yeah. when I read that. Good for her. It's hard. I think it's hard for a lot of people to accept that they were wrong because it's the sunk cost fallacy. We want our sacrifices to have been worth it. We don't want to confront the possibility that maybe we did something and it was silly, you know, that's hard to accept as humans. So good, good on her for admitting that. So tell me about your anonymity here with, with the book and promoting the book, because I hear, I mean, I'm anonymous too. And I, I wonder how you feel, how you feel about that. I have a lot of people, and I'm sure you do too, say privately that they agree with me, that they agree oh, yeah that this direction that we're sliding into is, is bad that, um, you know, and, and Jordan Peterson, I I think we talked about this earlier. Jordan Peterson was tweeting, look, you need to stop being anonymous because then you dissociate between a public persona and a private viewpoint and you're, you're screwing up you, you could get screwed up mentally. You need to, you need to say what you think carefully, but the alternative is worse because if you're not happy with the university or let's say the literary world for you, 
who knows what's coming and people need to be able to say common sense views out loud. If, if America is a fundamentally good place, what would you say to that? Right. You know, I have, I don't know. I have a little bit of cognitive dissonance going on because in theory, I do kind of agree what he, with what he's saying and I see where he's coming from. Um, I wish that, you know, you wonder if everyone felt like they could just say their mind and speak common sense, if everyone did it, it would be easier to do because, you know, it wouldn't be as um, different, it wouldn't be as othered. But at the same time, we live in reality, we don't live in theory. And the reality is that you will get dropped by your publisher, your dreams will be dashed. You know what I mean? So, oh, yeah, I agree. I mean, so I'm, I'm I still know. I'm not coming, I didn't. It, right. it made me think a lot, but I didn't come out with my my own name and invite Antifa over to my house. Exactly. Yeah, there are some real and there are real safety concerns. You're right. Like there are crazy people out there, and not everyone can afford personal security, like a lot of the talk show hosts have. Tell me about whether you've had any of that kind of scary pushback on Twitter at all. Um. Not really. Oh, no, I haven't. Um, I only have an account. Yeah, I I mean, I have an account that I have like, oh, I don't even know. I don't remember. I've like probably like 3,000 followers. followers. It's, I mean, yeah, it's not bad, but I, I don't have a podcast. I mean, of course I've had trolls come at me and like say mean things, but I've never had legitimate threats. I hope I'm not inviting it right now. <laughs> um, but I've had friends who have gotten that sort of thing in their DMs and you know, it's it's scary, but I think a lot of these people are just bored and lonely and angry and not hopefully not a legitimate threat. Um but you never want to come across that. It does it is scary. Well, the price of telling the truth is really hard right now, whether you're anonymous or not. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad that you are out there and that you have your account and you're writing these really great books. You're not hitting anybody over the head with some incendiary message. It's a very, it's an incredibly common sense risk balancing message that now all these mainstream docs like Dr. Gandhi are completely engaged in and I think would agree with. I mean, I know I know she would. Just listening to her on Atia, a million percent agree with it. And I do think it's becoming mainstream. And I think you were just ahead of the pack. Yeah, let's get a blurb from her, right? Oh, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> it, it would never happen, but it would be quite funny. Well, you know what, yeah. Allie? There may be some blurbs coming down the pike that you could never, you would follow. It's possible that you would fall out of your chair right now if, if you, if you yeah. could imagine what they were. Because like you said, I do think things are changing in part because of Biden's approval rating. And I think mm -hmm. in part because we've finally cobbled, you know, thanks to the red states, honestly, we've been able to cobble a lot of this date, this masking data together and and thank you to the doctors like Marty Macri, who were always pretty. Uh, oh, she's the best. I mean, they they have always been very skeptical of interventions on kids and really mm -hmm. digging into the data and trying to analyze it. And so, thanks to those guys, I mean, they were definitely way out ahead of the pack. And finally, what what they're and in Jay Bhattacharya, I mean, what what, what he was effectively canceled now everything he's saying is coming true oh yeah he's, he's great too 
So I, I really appreciate you coming on. Is there, what else can you tell us? Obviously you've got this book, Frogs Don't Need Floaties. Everybody get on Amazon, buy it, give Allie a good review, follow her on Twitter. What else do you want to tell us? And are, is there anywhere else we can find you or what else should we do? Um, yeah, I just say I love having friends on Twitter. Um, I have a lot of, I've made a lot of good connections on there. So yeah, tweet at me friend request me or I guess you follow people on Twitter what am I thinking and I hope to write more books in the future I hope I really want um yeah if you're an author if you're a writer if you're a bookseller librarian who is um conservative leaning or team reality um shoot me a dm it'd be really fun if one day we could get a big group of us together that just kind of helps support each other and um we we kind of have a little one going but there's not many of us yet so well, and this, yeah. not to sound too woke or too Portlandy, but on women in business and and other women mm-hmm. entrepreneurs and other, I mean, we have a lot, in, especially those of us who are mommies and who are really invested in this idea of masks coming off these kids. We have a lot in common. And the fact is, you know, the New York Times has done piece after piece of this conceding that Mm-hmm. droves of women have left the workforce because of these idiotic, lengthy school closures. And the bulk yeah. of this, all of this COVID garbage of homeschooling and domestic chores and masked grocery shopping, that has fallen on us. So it yeah, it would be great to get to get more support. So get out there, get on Twitter, follow Allie, get her book, Frogs Don't Need Floaties. It is out now. And if you are interested in in any kind of nuance discussion or risk balancing discussion to be have with your kid, and I thought it was just enlightening for myself because it just made me think of all the other things that are threats and risks that I take in everyday life. Pick it up. It's adorable. It's got really cute illustrations. And Allie, congratulations. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for having me on your show. It was really fun to get to know you and chat. It was fun to get to know you too. I hope you come back. I Yeah, I hope so too.